This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that explores what it will take to have a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. This episode is full, so let's jump right in. Today, Tim Keller argues that a fundamental element of a missionary encounter with culture is that the Christian community must model a counterculture characterized by a category-defying social vision. This sort of community with a membership that transgresses national and ethnic barriers and ethical commitments that don't easily fit into the categories of liberal or conservative would faithfully reflect the spirit of the earliest Christians. Those early Christians lived a life together that both offended and attracted their neighbors in the Roman world. A Christian community committed to following Jesus faithfully will do the same today. Now this category-defying social vision has a lot of moving parts and a lot of different elements. Today's guests lead us deeper into two of them. Sam Alberry helps us understand how Christian sexual ethics both repulse and appeal to the broader culture, as well as how the church can become a hospitable home for everyone. Ephraim Smith opens up the challenges and possibilities of multi-ethnic ministry. Here, as in other discussions, we are reminded that our challenges don't lie entirely out there in the secular world. A number of them originate in the church and have to be dealt with there. Both of our guests bring us back to the gospel and invite us to consider the implication of these discussions for our local ministry. But first, Tim Keller. A category-defying social vision In Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado seeks to explain why an increasing number of people converted to Christianity in the Roman world, even though it was the most persecuted of all religions and carried significant social cost. Hurtado suggests that part of the answer was the Christian social project, a unique kind of human community that defied categories then and still does today. It has at least five elements that can be broken down and expounded at greater length but which also need to be seen together as they constitute a whole. The early church's social vision was this. First, it was multiracial and multiethnic. The Christian religious identity was shocking to the pagans. Previously, you were born into your religion. Each race, country, and location had its own gods, and therefore no one ever chose their gods or their religion. Rather, you simply inherited the religion that was essentially an extension of your culture. That meant that all the people who shared your religion were culturally homogeneous. Your race determined your faith. It also meant that your race and culture received divine sanction and could never be critiqued. But Christians believed that there was one true God and everyone should put their faith in him. That meant your faith was not only independent of your race, it was more fundamental than your race. It gave you a bond with all other Christians that was deeper than any other. When a person of any race or culture put their faith in Christ, It gave them a new perspective on their inherited culture and a new multiracial, multiethnic community, the first one formed by any religion. See Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Secondly, it was highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. In that time period, it was considered normal to care for the poor and needy of one's family and tribe, but no one felt obligated to care for all poor and needy people, especially not barbarians. But based on Jesus' Good Samaritan parable, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the early church shockingly embraced all who were in need. 
The pagan emperor Julian famously remarked that the radical Christian practice of caring not only for their own poor but for ours as well was both offensive and attractive. See Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, and Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Third, it was non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgiveness. The early Christians were notable in that if you attacked or killed them, they did not organize retaliation or get revenge. They were famous for experiencing death in the arena or by execution as they prayed for their persecutors, following the example of Stephen and Jesus himself. The Christian teaching on forgiveness and turning the other cheek created a community of peacemaking, reconciliation, and bridge building. See Romans 12, 14 to 21, and 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12, and 21 to 23. Fourth, it was strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. Christians were dead set against both abortion and infanticide, but not merely in principle. They found and took in infants who had been thrown out to die or who had been thrown out to be harvested by slavers. The early church was pro-life, especially in the sense that they recognized no gradations of human value. In a tribalized, socially stratified, shame and honor culture, that was shocking. See Luke chapter 1 verse 15, see James chapter 1 verse 27, see Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16. Fifth, the early church revolutionized the sex ethic. In the Roman world, sex was merely an appetite. Its purpose was to serve the social order. Married women could not have sex with anyone but their husbands, but the men, even married ones, could have sex with any male or female they wanted as long as it was with someone of less honor and lower class. Christianity's revolutionary teaching detached sex and marriage from the social order and connected it to the cosmic order, to God's saving love and redemption. God gave himself to us by going to the cross, and we must respond by giving ourselves utterly and exclusively to him and no other God. This saving love brought about an astonishing union between two radically different beings, God and humanity. Therefore, sex is not for self-gratification, but for giving one's whole life in a consensual marriage covenant that fosters deep unity across the difference of male and female and combine their non-reproducible excellencies. This was a high, attractive vision of the character of sex. It took enormous power away from men and the upper classes. Christianity was immensely attractive to women who saw it as an equalizing and empowering religion. See 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 to 7, verse 5. So the early Christian community was both offensive and attractive. Believers did not construct this community as a way to reach Roman culture. Rather, each of the five elements listed above characterized the early church because Christians sought to submit to biblical authority. They are all commands as well as implications of the gospel. These five elements are just as category-defying, just as offensive and attractive today. The first two views on ethnic diversity and caring for the poor sound liberal. The last two views on abortion and sexual ethics sound conservative. The third element, being non-retaliatory, doesn't sound like any particular party today and is commonly rejected in today's culture of outrage. Churches today are under enormous pressure to jettison the first two or the last two, but not to keep them all. Yet, to give up any of them would make Christianity the handmaid of a particular political program and undermine the missionary encounter. To model the spirit of the early church, the late modern Christian social vision should today include building a multi-ethnic church, 
Not every community is multi-ethnic, and so not every church can or should be multi-ethnic. But in general, it is both theologically warranted, see Ephesians 2, and missionally effective in our culture for North American churches to be as multi-ethnic as possible and to learn from and be connected to the multiracial global church. In a world divided by tribe and race, there is no greater witness to the power of the gospel. Richard Baucom has pointed out that the Christian church is the most globally distributed religion. It shows greater cultural flexibility than any other religion. The reasons include the very concept of salvation by grace and the fact that the New Testament has no book of Leviticus filled with prescriptions for one particular cultural pattern. If local congregations are willing to be culturally flexible and not set one tradition in stone or sentimentalize a nostalgic, historic way of doing things, churches can exhibit more of the gospel's power to unite people across cultural barriers. Creating a church committed to the poor and to justice. It is important for churches to get the relationship between words and deeds, between evangelism and justice, right. Justice must not replace evangelism, but on the other hand, it must not simply be a means to the end of evangelism. We are to love our neighbors, sacrificially doing good for them regardless of their beliefs. Pursuing justice, then, is not to be ignored. And in order for churches to follow a biblical understanding of justice, it is important to know what biblical justice is not. Getting a grasp on the reductionist theories of justice that can infect the church, by that I mean Marxism, Kantian individualism, or utilitarianism, understanding those reductionist theories is crucial to keeping the church from straying from the gospel. The biblical understanding of justice is unique in the way it espouses equal dignity and fairness, a special practical respect and concern for the powerless, and radical generosity with money and possessions. The gospel's view on stewarding wealth, the causes of poverty, and our motivation to pursue justice uniquely distinguishes itself from all other views today. When we make this distinction, we both prioritize the gospel and we acknowledge the importance of justice. Being a pioneer in civility, peacemaking, and bridge building. Ethnicity and economics are not the only ways Western culture is divided. We are also divided ideologically, and our public discourse discourages measured and generous exchanges of ideas. In this context, Christians have an opportunity to model civility in a generation that desperately needs it. This involves practicing forgiveness and reconciliation, both internally and externally, it means knowing the role of individual Christians in politics, avoiding both the illusion of pietism and the error of partisanship. It's taking care that the local church does not bind people's consciences where the Bible has left them free by making pronouncements on political matters that are matters not of biblical mandate, but of prudential wisdom. It is embodying these specific traits and methods when in dialogue with people who hold deeply different views. So civility first involves humility. Humility includes recognizing the limits of what you can prove, understanding that everyone's position is based on unprovable faith assumptions. Civility involves humility in that you should critique others on the basis of their beliefs and framework, not yours. Civility also involves patience. Patience requires giving sustained time to listening, understanding, and empathizing, and identifying two things, the different experiences that divide us and the common experiences and commitments that unite us. We must root this patience in Christian hope, avoiding both liberal utopianism and conservative nostalgia for the past. And civility involves tolerance. 
Tolerance shows respect for someone made in the image of God, even when that person is espousing something you find morally reprehensible. It does not require accepting views and behavior that are terribly wrong, nor refraining from calling out such things clearly, but it does involve tolerance. And then, civility involves a lack of self-righteousness. The gospel reminds us that we live unjustly, and so the gospel keeps us from despising and abusing people who we see as oppressors. It keeps us from becoming oppressors ourselves as we seek to oppose oppression. We also need to have a church that is strongly pro-life. Doctrine of the image of God makes abortion a sin. Efforts to justify abortion of the unborn end up justifying infanticide and killing elderly people with dementia. The early church's pro-life stance, however, was radically practical and not just political. It was committed to the whole lives of unwanted infants. Many made sacrifices not just to save their lives, but to support them and love and bring them into their family throughout their entire lives. Today's church must not abstract a political pro-life stance, voting and supporting pro-life political candidates, from the actual sacrificial practical support of children, women, long-term singles, and families. This cannot happen short of turning the church itself into a true family. See 1 Timothy 5. Creating the church as a true family is also central to the final element. We must become a sexual counterculture. One of the greatest objections to Christianity today is that it has an outmoded sexual ethic. Many believe Christianity has an unhealthy negative view of sexuality in general and of gay people in particular. The Christian view of sex is especially repugnant to today's understanding of self and identity. That view asserts the self's freedom to pursue fulfillment, and it also idealizes sexual expression and intimacy as a unique way to become an authentic self. The Christian sexual code is therefore considered both unrealistic and oppressive. But we need to remember that the early church did not hold just one more of the many ancient, superstitious, taboo-laden cultural views of sexuality. The Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of consent in sex, and it made sex not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those with more power, but about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. This is a higher, not a lower view of sex. The church also needs to argue that modern culture's sexual logic, that sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realization, that ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than a means to nurture a bond of covenant. It leads to fractured community and the decline of marriage and the family. Sex outside of marriage is ultimately transactional and so it cannot finally be intimate. Culture's approach to sex, both in the Roman world and the modern world, has been bad for women. See the Me Too movement for proof. The Christian view requires sex to always be super consensual, only for people ready to give their whole lives to each other. The church needs to create a sexual counterculture in its lived community, becoming a place where men and women refrain from sex before marriage, where men and women seek a marriage partner not on the basis of looks and wealth but character, where the unmarried, whether divorced, widowed, or never married, are incorporated as extended family members having close friendships with both sexes and nurturing relationships with children, and where people with same-sex attraction are valued members and are given support for their calling to chastity. Finally, it should be a place where people who have struggled with issues of sex and gender are welcomed and listened to with humility, patience, and love. 
Yeah, it, I guess issues of sexuality more generally, um, I think, became relevant for two reasons. This is Sam Alberry. One, from a ministry point of view, I've been serving as a pastor. And in the early, well, I guess late 2000s, early 2010s, the cultural shifts particularly began to sort of impact ground level ministry. I was just noticing Christians beginning to wobble a lot more on what would have been a traditional Christian sort of understanding of sexual ethics. Feeling, you know, I could I could sense people beginning to wonder whether that was the right thing to, to think, uh, whether that was good um, for people. Um, I was noticing Christian leaders beginning to sort of change their minds a bit and become more sort of revisionist. So it was it was becoming more of an urgent issue simply from a pastoral ministry perspective. The other the other reason was, you know, I had for so many years been wrestling with same sex attraction in my own life. Um, that was part of my experience as I was coming to faith as a teenager and then trying to work through all that as a Christian in the years since. Um, I'd never particularly felt any strong desire or need to to speak about that, to, to say anything about that. That was sort of, other than to a few close friends, that was a sort of a private, personal matter. But as I saw these these cultural things changing and the church sort of weakening in, in a number of areas on this and, and sort of losing confidence in, in what I believe the scriptures say, I felt it was more urgent to have someone speak into these issues from inside of them um, not just talking about gay marriage or things like that from a outsider's perspective but actually to have people who, who could speak from their own testimony and experience and in particular the burden I had was I wanted people to know that God's word to people in my situation was a good word um, it can feel restrictive and, and difficult um, it is restrictive it is difficult, um, but it's fundamentally good. And so that that has been my burden on this, is to help, I hope in some way, to help the church be strengthened in in its convictions around these things and, and to have the right kind of disposition and posture as we get into these conversations with, with wider culture. Sam Alberry is a pastor, apologist, and author of a number of books, including Is God Anti-Gay?, Seven Myths About Singleness, and What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. Our conversation together drew on all these areas of Sam's interest and expertise as we explored more deeply what it would look like for the church to model a sexual counterculture. I asked Sam to begin by helping us understand the conflicted relationship many modern Western people have with our bodies. Yeah, I think conflicted is a good word for it because I don't think we're, we're very consistent. Um, on the one hand, we're far more self-conscious physically than we ever have been. Um, I'm, I'm noticing this as a man that, you know, 20 years ago, the men's grooming section of a of a supermarket was was pretty slim. You'd, you'd have your shaving kit and maybe a brand of aftershave and some deodorant, and that was about it. Uh, whereas now it's it's a huge deal. It's a, it's a huge thing. Um, that's neither a bad thing or a good good thing. It's just a it's just significant that we're far more self-conscious as men now about our appearance and we used to be and across the board that seems to be the case in western culture anyway we're we're the the standards of beauty that are being presented to us are increasingly i think unrealistic and in some cases aren't actually based on a, a real person's 
body, it's it's a Photoshop or something else. My sense is I think we're all feeling less attractive and less presentable as a result. There's a lot of rising uh, body image issues and anxieties. Um, so on one hand, we're, we are far more self-conscious about our appearance. That it just sort of seems to be a bigger deal than it used to be. Whilst at the very same time, the sort of prevailing worldview seems to be that your your body doesn't actually mean anything. It's accidental. It's incidental. It's simply the, the lump of flesh that you drag around with you. It, it doesn't tell you anything about who you are. It is simply the canvas on which you, you paint your real identity, which you, uh, you, you find by looking within, not by looking at your physicality. So... Yeah, I, I think there's some, some inconsistency there. On the one hand, we're making too much fuss over what our bodies look like. But on the other hand, we're very much underplaying any significance our own particular bodies might have for how we understand who we are. So in light of that kind of conflicted uh, understanding of the body that is playing out, what are some biblical convictions about the body that would help us find some resolution in those conflicts? The Bible does give us clarity on a lot of these things. Um, it shows us that every single human being, irrespective of what they think about themselves or what they think about us or what they're doing to themselves, is someone of, of infinite worth and value and dignity and we must respect that and there's the sort of cultural thing now where if you differ with me that must mean you're morally inferior and I can completely disdain you we can't do that as Christians um, we we actually offend God if we do that so we, we mustn't curse the image of God um, that that's a sort of a, one of the most foundational things the very same part of scripture Genesis 1 where we see that we also see that um, our sexual differentiation as male and female is significant to how we image God. It's not incidental. It doesn't say in the image of God he created him, introverts and extroverts, he created them as if personality type was the most sort of significant subcategory we could then go into as human beings. Um, it's not personality type. It's, it's not even ethnicity. It's, it's maleness and femaleness which we see throughout the, the rest of you know, the animal kingdom. But when it comes to hum, humanity, that maleness and femaleness has theological significance. Um, it's, it's foundational to how we image God. And therefore, we can't, as Christians, I think, have a, a sort of plastic understanding of, of gender identity or one that is independent of the sort of biological givenness of, of how we've been made. Um, our gender identity in, in the Bible is to is to come from our our physical givenness, not our psychological kind of thinking. Um, that helps me at the very least because it shows me, for, quite apart from anything else, that as a as a Christian man who has had experience of same sex attraction, my sexual identity in Genesis one terms is not. I'm someone who's same-sex attracted. My sexual identity in biblical terms is I'm male. That is my sexual identity. That's part of my eternal identity. When I'm, when I'm resurrected in the age to come, I will be resurrected as a man. I won't be resurrected with the same 
sexual feelings and, and temptations that I experience in this life. And I, I thank God that that's the case. So I, I mustn't make my sexual feelings the ground of my core identity, because that's actually something that is temporal, something that is bound up with this this age that is going to be passing away. It's not part of my eternal identity in Christ. So that that helps me kind of, of all the different sort of identity markers that we we're presented with in our culture, it helps me know sort of what theologically to prioritize. Um, and the, the big issue underlying all of this is contemporary cultural anthropology versus biblical anthropology, um, how we understand what it means to be human being and how we know who we are is very different to our cultures and our cultures is very different even to what it was 20 years ago. Um, our view of identity has changed significantly. So those would be some of the, the sort of the key things. And as we then try and engage in those conversations, um, obviously we we are aware that we're treading into very, very sensitive terrain and we need to appreciate that. It's it's not the time, I think, to be kind of swashbuckling as, as believers, but to be aware that there are, in many cases, heightened emotions, heightened feelings, um, deep pains and, and wounds and... We want to be sensitive to that, and I think one of the most significant ways we can do that is to try to, on any issue like this, try and show something of how the gospel treats all of us the same. Sam addresses two emphases in his writing on these difficult topics. One is that Christians have to be clear about what they believe the Bible teaches. The other is that they have to cultivate congregations in which that clear teaching can be received as good news. Failure in either direction can result in churches where people who are wrestling with questions about sexuality, including their own, can quickly feel unwelcome. So I I see this play out in a number of of ways, fairly commonly, sadly. One is is that it's very easy in, in some evangelical church culture to be more convicted about certain sexual sins than other ones. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's what the human heart does. We know the spirit has come to convict of sin. So we, we get convicted about other people's sins. It's always easier to, to be more concerned about someone else's sin than your own, which means in the context of a local church, it's going to be the case that it will be the sins of the minority that are more easily condemned from the pulpit than the sins of the majority, because we're going to have blind spots to our own sins. So it's very easy to have churches where gay relationships, gay marriage, the gay community is railed against frequently from the pulpit, but no one is talking about spousal abuse or adultery or men using pornography or whatever it might be. Um, those are just a bit too close to home. So that that's one danger is that we're, we're not consistent. We're not reflecting the balance and proportion of scripture with how we talk about various types of sin. So I, I just think, I keep coming back to First Timothy um, where Paul says, you know, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And I don't think Paul was saying that, you know, he's surveyed the entire first century church and it turns out he is objectively the worst of all sinners. <laughs> I think Paul is simply showing us the perspective that when you really know how messed up your own heart is, it's very hard to believe there's someone else out there who's more messed up than you are. So I, I think that the posture the gospel would have each of us take is 
the sin that I'm going to be most concerned about is going to be my own. I'm not going to be unconcerned about other people's, but I'm going to be more convicted about, concerned about going to war with my own sin than, than that of somebody else's. So that's one way. I think we, we sort of, we, we kind of, there's an imbalance there. I think the other way, and you alluded to this, is uh, we so exalt marriage in much of our Christian culture that we, we sort of imply you're either spiritually just immature if you've not yet married, or we sort of make it as though actually you can't functionally do life in the Christian world if you're not married because we've sort of assumed marriage to be the basic unit of how church life works. And so if you don't have a marriage, you are you don't really fit in. There is a lack of community that, that comes with that. And as you said so rightly, there's a lack of plausibility then for anyone who might be thinking long-term singleness is in their future. We're just not going to find the intimacy the Bible shows us all of us need in a healthy way in the church. And as the uh, Catholic theologian Christopher West says, intimacy is like is like hunger. If your only choice is bad food or no food, you'll eat bad food because you've got to eat. And if in our churches the only apparent alternatives are no intimacy or unbiblical intimacy, we'll go for unbiblical intimacy. And I've seen people leave churches because they've got into relationships that the Bible would prohibit. And it's very easy for a church in that context to go, well, that was that's terribly wrong and disobedient. But part of me wants to say to the church, did you give them an alternative? Was there healthy biblical intimacy on offer in this church? Or is that just not available to those who aren't married? The three things I, I think every church needs are clarity. We're not serving anyone if we're, if we're muddled about what the Bible says. Compassion, that again, we recognise our own sexual fallenness uh, and therefore that gives us a compassion and a heart for those even if their own experience of sexual fallenness is very different to our own and then thirdly community that we are actually embodying a kind of community that makes singleness or, or other forms of kind of home life complexity that that makes it viable and not just survivable but actually desirable to be part of a local church. It's especially important for the Christian community to be plausible and desirable because the Christian sexual ethic itself is increasingly offensive to our broader Western culture. Sam explains why. Much of our culture says that sexual fulfillment is the key to how you, you live authentically and fully and healthily. And therefore, this is, this is where the change has really kicked in because... 20 years ago, certainly when I was at university, Christians were seen as quaint and old-fashioned. Uh, and so they didn't like our sexual ethic because it was a bit quaint and old-fashioned. Now they think it's dangerous, that actually it's harming people to deny them the kind of sexual fulfillment that they they feel they, they want to have. And the reason, again, is to do with anthropology. We foregrounded sexuality to be one of the things that is kind of core to who we are, and therefore... If you're not experiencing or aiming for sexual fulfillment or if that's, if that's not available to you, then you can't really be who you truly are. Um, it's become sort of axiomatic. Um, so therefore, the fact that we come along and, and then have boundaries around certain forms of sexual expression is, is deeply offensive. I mean, that's, that's offending against the gods level of offence. Um, 
it, it's a threat to the Pax Romana of of the Western world today to have that kind of message. So, and you know, I I, I get that. I understand that, given the, the sort of framework many of our secular friends will have. But I also want to say to them. You guys aren't as consistent on this as you think you are because there are still forms of sexual expression that you think should be prohibited. You can't, on the one hand, say sexual fulfillment is axiomatic to being a a whole and complete human being and then say things like paedophilia are wrong or incest is wrong. I mean, obviously, we can say as Christians that those things are wrong and we have, um, but I think we have a more consistent basis from which to say those things are wrong. So the thing I, I often find myself pushing against with secular friends is they kind of paint it that they're the people of sexual liberation, we're the people of, of sexual restriction. And I want to say, no, everyone has boundaries. It's just that we can account for our boundaries in a way that I don't think you can. Because you're giving with one hand what you're then taking away with the other hand. You think of the Me Too culture and the the way in which we, we haven't... has. Clearly, we have not been as committed to the notion of consent as we've all been saying we are um, over recent years. The Me Too movement has made that completely unavoidably clear that we've we've not been as pro-consent in practice as we say we are in theory. And again, I, I want to say you, you, you can't say to people that unless your sexual desires are fulfilled, you're not really living and then say, but you have to have consent. Because those two things clash in in the experience of a Harvey Weinstein or somebody else. That that is where the the, the gospel I think most immediately causes offence. But um, the very fact that it causes it there I think exposes something our culture is is not really coming clean about, which is there is a just some gaping inconsistencies with that whole kind of anthropology. Rather than centering self gratification, Sam suggests the gospel prioritizes self giving. This is the heart of the countercultural Christian sexual ethic, and it has broad implications. I think, too, our understanding of the biblical vision for, for sex actually is very significant, too, because it, it's, and Tim's language has helped me here in, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He talks about how sex is meant to be a form of self donation. We've turned it into self expression or a means to self gratification or self fulfillment, but it means sex is, is meant to be about. The giving of yourself to somebody else. Um, in the language of 1 Corinthians 7, your body doesn't belong to you now, it belongs to your spouse. It doesn't say your spouse's body belongs to you, so therefore take it. It says your body belongs to your spouse, so give it. We flip that over, we've made sex about taking, and the, the porn industry is the, the most kind of visceral expression of that. Uh, the biblical sexual ethic is about giving. And in our saying that sex outside of marriage is sinful, I think we've sometimes implied that all sex within marriage is therefore okay. And actually we've, we've overlooked the fact that there may well be huge amounts of selfish, coercive, abusive forms of sexual behaviour going on within Christian marriages that are not being addressed. Because again, we've, we've not been giving that vision of what sex is for and... Um, what it's meant to be sort of actually conveying and, and demonstrating. I, I think more broadly when we when we take the, the the idea that marriage is the icon of Christ and the church, 
again, it gives us it gives someone like me who's single something positive to do with my sexual energy, which is allow that sexual energy and the the frustration that can sometimes go with it it not being fulfilled to to actually make me realize that there's a deeper hunger that this is pointing to a, a deeper appetite, a greater consummation, which is found in the Lord Jesus. So we can actually sort of give people a positive vision of, of human sexuality that doesn't require our sexual feelings to be gratified in order for our sexuality to be fulfilled. Which again, I find is, for me, that's that's liberating. We're approaching an answer to this question, I think, but what would you say are the aspects of a Christian sexual ethic? Um, one of the ways has, has certainly got to be um, that there is a culture of sexual dignity. Our secular culture for all its professed claims to, to humaneness, um, is is still about commodifying other people's bodies and their sexuality as a means of, of being gratified. Rampant use of, of pornography shows that that is, that is the case. And I keep coming back to Matthew 5, 27, where Jesus says, you know, if, if a man looks with lustful intent at a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, that is not just rebuking the person looking lustfully. It is saying that the person being looked at has a sexual dignity that matters so much to Jesus. It mustn't be compromised even in the privacy of someone else's mind. So there's a there's a sexual dignity that Jesus gives us. So I think part of what we want to try to convey in terms of a Christian sexual counterculture is we want to be a place where your sexuality is not going to be misused by other people. There is more to you than the sexual gratification of other people. I found that very striking. It's, it's chimed in with a wider thought of mine, which is that we, we, we need to ground our evangelism more and more in, in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and for too long, we've, we've made Genesis 3 our functional starting point in sharing the gospel. And I think to show people that the dignity that they have as as people made in the image of God is going to be very significant, particularly in the, the culture we live in now. There's so much, so many people have been demeaned, they've been abused, they have been commodified, um, that to, to know that they have an inherent dignity that comes from their having been created by God, I think is a very fruitful starting point. The way I often put it, to my own church is we want to be the kind of church that feels safe for any kind of sinner to come and confess their sin and find the burden lifting rest that comes in Jesus. But that means we, we don't want to primarily be a church that is impressive enough for a state senator to come to. We want to be a church ultimately that is that is real and gritty enough that a sex worker can come to and find rest in Jesus. How might you address that pastorally, very practically, that sense in which people may need to belong before they believe? And if that's the case, then they're going to come in with different convictions than the community might have. And how do you manage that? I, I'm hesitant to, to sort of make belonging before belief axiomatic in a way that suggests, you know, fold everyone into church membership and eventually they'll they'll they'll, you know, catch up with with things I, I kind of want people to belong so much that they realize how much they don't belong um, because I want them to, to sort of feel folded in deeply loved and in one sense accepted by the church but also I want them to feel as though 
there is something they're missing out on, not in terms of relational perks that we're not extending to them, um, but that sense of, okay, you guys have something because of Jesus that's animating all of this that I actually need in my life. So I want people to come in close enough so that they can see where they where actually they don't fit in um, and in a, in a healthy, good way, realise they don't fit in. So that's part of it. I think hospitality is 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 a key thing. I I love Rosaria Butterfield's idea that actually hospitality in a in a secular world is is going to be a key part of how we how we do kingdom work. It's a wonderful way of again reflecting the gospel God has when we were far off, he came to us, he drew us to himself, he brought us into his family and he sat us at his table. And so by by doing that to people who are far from Christ, we're, we're actually enacting something about the gospel to them. And when it comes to people who, who may be um, their identities or their the way they comport themselves is not typical of what we're used to in church life. I've heard some, some Christians say, but, you know, it could be, um, what about the danger to our kids if, if someone who's trans starts turning up at church? And I kind of want to say, I don't think our kids' faith is that fragile. I'm more worried about what about the danger to the trans person if they don't come? And and surely we want our kids to grow up in a church where we we want people of all kinds of fallenness to feel welcome here. And just because we haven't ourselves kind of wrestled with gender identity and made that the sort of expression of how we we're going to be rebelling against God we've done it in more kind of socially conservative kind of ways again Jesus puts us all in the same boat and I think part of biblical hospitality is let's make ourselves uncomfortable rather than the outsider uncomfortable so let's let's not make them conform to our norms in order even to come in and hear the gospel let's make ourselves uncomfortable by having them with us so that they can hear the gospel. Born and raised in Minneapolis, specifically uh, the south side of Minneapolis, um, and I grew up on 38th and Elliott, and George Floyd died on 38th and Chicago. I know that community very well. So when I saw the video of George Floyd crying out for his life, uh, it, it became even more personal for me because I, I rode my, my bike on that block. I played touch football in the street, in the alley on that block. Ephraim Smith is co-lead pastor at Midtown Church in Sacramento, California. He's the author of several books, including The Post-Black and Post-White Church and Killing Us Softly, Reborn in the Upside-Down Image of God, both of which we refer to later in this conversation. He's also a host of the City Beats podcast. But today, he's our guest, leading us to think more deeply about the challenges and possibilities of being a counterculture by modeling multi-ethnic ministry and working for racial reconciliation. Ephraim is a longtime pastor in multi-ethnic ministry, and his story begins in Minneapolis, 
right near the geographical epicenter of America's ongoing conversations about race and justice. That neighborhood where Ephraim grew up represents another aspect of our national story, too. So, you know, that that block represents um, the uh, the death of George Floyd and also represents on 39th in Chicago, a block down the very first church I ever attended, a Lutheran church called Calvary. Even the store that George Floyd came out of is a store that when I would shovel snow or rake leaves and um, and receive, you know, some money for doing that in the neighborhood, I would go to uh, the store that's now Cup Foods. It was called O'Toole's Drugstore when I was a kid. And I bought so many Hostess apple pies and, you know, comic books and Twinkies from that store. You know, I, I, I couldn't keep that money in my pocket. As soon as I received <laughs> those dollars, it just turned into Twinkies, Hostess apple pies, and comic books. <laughs> they say don't spend it all in one place, but you spent it all but in one I, place. But <laughs> I actually did. I actually did. Um, uh, but I also, I, I have two very real and conflicting experiences thinking about growing up in, in that neighborhood. One is, it's where I found my faith. Uh, I went from Calvary Lutheran Church uh, to uh, eventually being a part of a church that my mother and grandmother were a part of planting uh, that would uh, be called Redeemer uh, Missionary Baptist Church. I gave my life to Christ in a youth group at a Methodist church in that same neighborhood, Park Avenue, United Methodist. I'm simultaneously a product of the black church, Redeemer Missionary Baptist Church, and Park Avenue, United Methodist Church, an evangelical church that became multiracial over time, but it was a battle for them. Um, there were some good white Christians that as, the, as families like mine moved in, thought that they should move out. But uh, the senior pastor, Dr. Phil Heinerman, said no, that, that we should stay here and claim this new mission field. Uh, and about 300, 400 people left when he decided not to lead a movement of, of moving the church out of South Minneapolis to a suburb. He even hired a youth pastor whose job would be 50% working with the youth in the church and 50% reaching youth in the neighborhood like me. There were people in the church, again, that though they stayed, they thought that the neighborhood youth ministry and the church youth ministry should be two separate youth ministries and that you should have a separate youth ministry down the street at a community center or a high school for the neighborhood youth and that the church building should just be used for the church youth. But the senior pastor and the youth pastor refused that request and another few hundred people left the church. But this church started bringing in African-American evangelical preachers like John Perkins, Tom Skinner, Tony Evans, Madeline Mims. Those voices impacted me. And so I think of South Minneapolis as, as the place of racial disparities, uh, the place of the death of George Floyd, but it's also the place where I was baptized, where I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I heard the reconciliation and biblical justice messages of Tom Skinner and John Perkins, and it's where I received my call into ministry. 
Ephraim's personal story highlights an important point we would do well not to miss. While it may be the case that the earliest Christians confounded the Roman Empire by worshiping and fellowshipping across national and ethnic divisions, and while it is certainly the case that Christianity is a global religion not bound to any one nationality or cultural expression, even so, here in America, church attendance and with it Christian fellowship has tended historically to sort along racial lines, just like the rest of society. That means if we want reconciliation and multi-ethnic fellowship to be part of our witness in the future, we have to reckon with the hard realities of our past. One of those realities is that we've been divided over race even while we've been united in belief. What's interesting to me, being a product of the black church in in the United States and evangelicalism in the United States is there are so many, if not all, of what we could argue are the essential core understandings, core theology of Christianity that the black church and the evangelical church agree on. I mean, if we talk about the Trinity, if we talk about the atonement, if we talk about the authority and centrality of scripture, uh, if we talk about the necessity of new birth, if we talk about... uh, the, the importance of the fellowship and communion of believers in the community known as the church. When we talk about the Great Commission, when we talk about evangelism, uh, so many uh, uh, of, of what is essential and core to what it means to be Christian and to be the church. But when we start talking about race and social issues and social disparities undergirding the issue of race that has been an issue since the inception of what we know as the United States of America, then you get a great chasm for the most part between evangelicalism and the black church. One way this racial divide plays out among Christians, broadly speaking, is in different perceptions of the scope and scale of sin. That is, whether sin is primarily individual or systemic or both. And in general, evangelicalism sees sin biblically as primarily, if not solely, in the heart of human beings, which is true. Sin is in the heart of human beings. But where evangelicalism has been slow to acknowledge, uh, and, and in some cases fighting against the acknowledgement of, is that sin is also found not just in the soul of individuals, but it's found in the systems, structures, ideologies, philosophies, uh, institutions that sinful individuals get together and collectively build and sustain over time. I mean, this is biblical. Yes, you can see sin in the heart of Saul in the scripture. You can see sin in the book of Esther, in the heart of Haman. You can see sin in the New Testament, in the heart of Peter, you know, in the heart of Judas. You you can see it. But you also see systemic sin in Assyria, in Babylon, in Egypt, even in the nation of Israel. Why did the people of God take 40 years to get to the promised land when it was a journey from Egypt to Jericho that should have only taken a matter of 
weeks to months. And so a journey that should have taken less than a year took 40 years. And, and it was a collective group of people that caused 40 years of death and rebellion uh, and dysfunction and division. And so the only thing I can think of, and I, I struggle in saying this, but it feels like there's a segment of evangelicalism that is benefited from systemic power. And so because of this benefit, there's a refusal to acknowledge it because to acknowledge it would then have to acknowledge being complicit in it. And this is not all of evangelicalism. It's not, but there's a segment. And, you know, I, I talk about this in my, my doctoral project um, when I, you know, that I wrote when I was at Fuller Theological Seminary, that there's a double consciousness within evangelicalism. Evangelicalism preaches freedom in Christ, the good news of the gospel. And yet there's a segment of evangelicalism that participated and helped to sustain slavery. But there were evangelicals, there were abolitionists. There were evangelicals that risked their lives to speak against slavery. The evangelicalism preached reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. Yet there's a segment of, of evangelicalism that participated in Jim Crow segregation and versions of segregation systems in the North. But yet there were evangelicals that participated in fighting for integration and risked their lives and lost their pastoral callings in Southern churches because they supported the civil rights movement. And then today, there is a segment of evangelicalism that is speaking boldly about the importance of the church looking like heaven, being multi-ethnic, multi-racial, Christ-centered. There are a, a number of core theological issues where there's union between the black church and the evangelical church. I mean, sometimes I've, I've been in some black churches where the preaching is more conservative than some of the preaching I hear in some evangelical churches. <laughs> right. I mean, you want to hear some fire and brimstone preaching. You better get your life right. You better take responsibility. You better repent of your sins. If you died tonight, you ain't going to make it. I've heard that <laughs> preached in a lot of black churches. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, when it comes to the issue of race, all of a sudden, then the chasm is revealed between evangelicalism and the black church. When you get to the issue of, of race, the video of George Floyd's death was a great opportunity for there to be a, a great reconciling, unifying moment between the black church and evangelicalism. There was also a great opportunity for it to be bigger than a black white church moment, but a moment to include a reconciliation, a biblical reconciliation agenda that would include our Hispanic brothers and sisters, our the various expressions of our Asian brothers and sisters. There was an opportunity in 2020 for there to be a great reconciliation revival 
in the church in the United States. There could have been a new great awakening that started within the American church and went out to a greater uh, realization of discipleship and evangelism in the United States. We could have, that we could have experienced, and it's not too late. Awakening, revival, reconciliation all began with the household of God. And as Ephraim was explaining this gap between the ways white evangelicals and black Christians historically view sin, I began to think that bridging this gap is an essential element of embracing a category-defying social vision that brings together things like a firm pro-life commitment, Christian sexual ethics, and racial reconciliation. There's a segment of evangelicals, of some, not all, white brothers and sisters, that can see systemic issues when it comes to issues of sexuality or abortion, but can't see it when it comes to race because they don't feel complicit or feel shamed in talking about these other issues because they're pointing the finger someplace else. The blame is being pointed someplace else. This segment doesn't want to acknowledge systemic racism because they feel the finger is being pointed at them. If you're talking about abortion, you can put another segment of people on trial. You can put a liberal culture on trial. And, and so to talk about race, there are some white brothers and sisters that feel like they're being put on trial and they don't want that. And I'm not done anything. How dare you put me on trial? A segment of evangelicalism right now is fueled by drawing a line in the sand between the church and culture, between the secular and the sacred, and the secular is on trial. The the spotlight is on the secular. Don't turn the spotlight back on, even though that's kind of what Jesus did. Like Jesus turned the spotlight on the Pharisees and the people that thought they knew God the most are the people that Jesus said, you hypocrites, you, you vipers, you liars, you know, but I understand some of this because there are versions of diversity training, sensitivity training around issues of race that are very shaming and guilt-ridden and don't have the beloved community of the kingdom of God as the end goal. I have been in diversity trainings where white people have been told you're racist and there's nothing you can do about it. So just acknowledge that you're a racist and deal with it. You racist. And I'm going, that's not the gospel. The end game of the gospel is not just shaming and uh, exposing guilt and leaving it there. The end game of the gospel is transformation. It's redemption. It's new life. And so there has to be a way to talk about the realities of systemic racism and there be repentance and lament, confession, but also be redemption and reconciliation and empowerment and liberation. Systemic sin is biblical. Justice is biblical. And to deny it in any way is hindering our ability to be more fruitful missionally in the United States and beyond. Coming to terms with the systemic nature of racism isn't only a doctrinal issue. It also helps explain why, practically speaking, multi-ethnic ministry is just so difficult in the United States. Many, if not most, of our social institutions actively work against racial integration. One of the reasons that 
multi-ethnic church is difficult is we have to acknowledge all of the systems and structures built around race that um, make it more conducive in our country to plant and sustain homogeneous churches. I mean, you can just look at people's social media pages. You can, you can just look at neighborhoods. People still tend to live in neighborhoods primarily with people that look like them. Um, people tend to build friendships with people that look like them. And so the church has just followed suit. I mean, the church was born in the United States of America within the race structure and within, you know, racial division, et cetera. So, um, so we have to acknowledge how the social structure of race and its appendages have affected why the church is majority still homogeneous. Or the other word we don't like to say, segregated. Homogeneous is just the nice way of saying segregated. <laughs> it really is. Because segregated just sounds so bad. But homogeneous, like you could say, oh, homogeneous is like a principle for church planting and church growth. All right. Homogeneous is a principle for missions. You know what I mean? But segregation, you can't say, you know what? I'm going to go do segregated missions. I think the second issue is the colorblind theory. This issue of, I don't need to pursue diversity or multi-ethnicity because I don't even see diversity. You know, when I look at you, I don't even see color. We actually are in a world that wants you to see color. That's why we have traffic lights. We want you to see color. If you didn't know the difference between red, yellow, and green, we're in trouble. We actually are in a world that wants you to see color or we'd still have black and white TVs. So we want to see color. And so the colorblind theory of the answer to dealing with racial division is to not see ethnic racial difference. That impedes multi-ethnic ministry development. Uh, and then the last area I would say is assimilation is the thought that, and, and that's where we are now, is we have churches that say they're committed to diversity, but they're not being honest and saying, we want a diverse church that assimilates into the majority culture that the church was started on. So you have churches that were started in exclusively white upper class communities 20 years ago, and they wait until 18 years 20 years after they started exclusively as a white suburban upper middle class upper class church and then they say 18 years later we want to be a diverse church so then they start hiring diverse people but as soon as those diverse people start expressing um their their concern about racism and prejudice and things of such nature within that church that had no diversity or very little diversity, then those, uh, those pastors, staff of color that raise these issues in this church, they get accused of being angry, emotional, immature, 
uh, dividing the church. You know, we we were a, a a peaceful, loving church pursuing the gospel, and now we've got this black pastor, and he's talking about systemic racism, and he's talking about George Floyd, and she's talking about this, and they're just causing problems, and they're dividing our church. We need to get back to the gospel. Well, no, it's not that you abandon the gospel. It's that you never had to apply the gospel to this issue because your church wasn't diverse until 15, 16, 20 years into its being a church. Or in some cases, for 50 years, and then the neighborhood changed, and then you had to decide whether you were going to move to the suburbs out of the city or you were going to stay in the neighborhood and become a truly Christ-centered, multi-ethnic church. So in part of evangelicalism, we're having the same debate now we were having in the book of Acts. So the, 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 the first debate was, do Gentiles have to culturally act like Jews to be in Christian community with Jews? Now, we don't really want to admit this, but what's really going on is we're asking, do Hispanics and African-Americans various expressions of the Asian community have to act culturally like white Christians in order to go into a predominantly white church that desires to be multi-ethnic. Are there particular practices or postures or things that someone should keep in mind in order to facilitate community that is diverse and not assimilated? Yes. Right? That, that honors the particular cultures of people present. Yeah. And I, I hate to sound like a self-promoter, but I'm going to briefly talk about some things that I deal with more exclusively in two of my books. So one book is called The Post-Black and Post-White Church. The other book is called Killing Us Softly. And so in The Post-Black and Post-White Church, I talk about um, things that one can do to become a reconciling cross-cultural Christian prior to strategically pursuing the multi-ethnic church. What I'm trying to say is what you want to have take place in your church has to take place in you first. Before you pursue your church becoming multi-ethnic, how does your own heart, how does your own mindset stay Christ-centered, but increasingly become cross-cultural, multi-ethnic reconciling. What books are you reading? Uh, what other churches are you visiting from time to time? Who are your friends? Who's speaking into your life? Do you have multi-ethnic diversity in your peer group? in the people that pastor you speak into your life, that inform your thinking, or even when you pursue diversity, are you pursuing diversity by people that look different than you, but they don't challenge your thinking at all? And then the last piece is, this is what I learned, where, where I have been deeply challenged is I came into my ministry call mainly going, why doesn't the church look like heaven? The church should look like heaven. The church, whenever possible, the church should be multi-ethnic. I love the black church. I'm connected to the black church. I will never isolate myself from the black church. And at the same time, I think whenever possible, the church should look like heaven. 
It should be a sneak preview of heaven. But I found having that passion alone was not biblically enough. And so where I'm at now is I'm saying, it's not just that the church should be diverse. It's why the church should be diverse. And I'm now at a place that when the church is multi-ethnic, when it's a reconciling community, it has a greater missional evangelistic credibility in an ever-increasing multicultural and divided mission field. Having a diverse group of people in the same room on Sunday morning doesn't make the church a counterculture. What makes it a counterculture is rejecting the culture's dynamics of power and privilege. This inversion of power and privilege was a hallmark of the New Testament church. The, the hand can't say it doesn't need the elbow. The eye can't say it doesn't need the ear. What, you know, the, the, the parts that have been deemed, what he's saying is the parts of the body that have been deemed lesser than in society actually need to be lifted up. And the parts in society that have been deemed greater than actually need to be humbled so that all the members of the body. And, and so why is Paul saying that? Because he knew that whether he was writing the letter to the to the churches at Corinth or writing to churches in Rome, there was this issue of the Jewish people who were marginalized in society, but had a spiritual understanding of their privilege and chosenness. And then there were those who were privileged in society in the Roman Empire that when they came into the church, they felt marginalized. And so Paul speaks to both the spiritual and the social issues of privilege and also is trying to say in Christ, there, there's no group that's greater than or lesser than. So when he's saying in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, he's not saying that gender doesn't matter, that ethnicity doesn't matter, that ignore the problematic issue of slavery in society, just move on and don't do nothing about it. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul was, the reason he said there's no Jew or Gentile is he's saying there's no privilege. Jews don't get to be privileged over Gentiles. Gentiles don't get to be privileged over Jews. Men don't get to be privileged over women. The, the slave master dynamic that is based on wealth and privilege and notoriety in society is suspended, dismantled in Christ. That's what, and so the church has to be the place that is countercultural to the systems and structures that deem people groups better than and lesser than in society verse but we can't do that if we bring the rhetoric of that society into the church i want at the end of the day with all of the issues and challenges we're facing the unrest the brokenness the systemic sin i still want us to be people of hope in the new testament though the people of god were marginalized and oppressed persecuted. I mean, for the faith, they were crucified upside down. They were beheaded. They were thrown in prison. They were beating publicly. They were stoned to death. Uh, they were still people of rejoicing and hope. At least that's what they were being called to. They were being called in the midst of deep suffering to not lose hope. And my prayer is that in the midst of all of the um, struggles and challenges that we're facing in the West, 
that we would not lose hope, that we would still be a people of rejoicing, we would be a people of hallelujah, and we would be a people that would be desirous, hungry, to grab hold like never before to all of the elements of the gospel, centered in Christ, but focused on transformation, redemption, reconciliation, righteousness, and justice. And that um, we still have a great opportunity to rise as reconciling Christians in a broken world. We've covered a lot of ground in this episode, and I know you'll want to hear more from our excellent guests. You can find extended print versions of our full interviews at RedeemerCityToCity.com slash resources. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. It is written and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. All the rest is done by Braden Gregg. Special thanks to Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona for the use of their studio space. And if what you've heard today makes you want to hear more about Redeemer City to City, you can find us online at RedeemerCityToCity.com.